Montana Casting Company is a performance fly rod and reel company based right here in our capital, Helena, Montana. Each model of fly rod is a tribute to Montana's rugged beauty and adventurous spirit. Their rods capture the look, feel, and craftsmanship of a custom-built fly rod. Scott personally calls every customer who buys one of his rods. Head to montanacastingco.com and use code MEATEATER20 at checkout for a one-time 20% off discount. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacova's is your stop before attending your next concert. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. Yeah, Steve, they're very comfortable, they're very fashionable, and I enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere I go. Stop by your local Tacova's store, have a complimentary drink, and shop new styles. If you can't make it to a store, just visit Tacova's.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com, and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Telling you what, Decked is a game changer. Decked has completely changed how I load, organize my truck. All my stuff that I want is always in there, out of my way, and secure. It's perfect. If you own a pickup truck that you use, you know, like a truck, the decked drawer system gives you weatherproof storage for all your gear. You can lock it up, too. You keep your tools and gear organized, job site or out in the field. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Go to decked.com slash meat eater and get yourself some free shipping. Thank you for joining us, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Meat Eater Podcast. Uh, we're going to talk now about something that is perhaps the least understood, in my opinion, realm of, of, of hunting and fishing in America, which is hunting mountain lions. Um, something that I've never done successfully. No thanks to the guy I'm sitting here with, Floyd Green. Um, before I get into that, I want to remind everyone, if you like, like, if you want to watch, watch the show Meat Eater, not listen to the Meat Eater podcast, go to meateater.vhx.tv and you can uh, download it and stream it to your heart's content. They sell them on there in like these blocks of episodes. And if you go on there and use the offer code Meat Eater podcast, you get five bucks off any volume. And there's a lot. How many volumes did you say around there yet? Six. Six volumes. I think that's about 25% off. I think they're around $20. Way huge discount. So meateater.vhx.tv, offer code meateaterpodcast. And while you're at it, go on to Yanni. Yannis uh, uh, Patelis is joining us here. Go on to Yannis's thing. Website. Plug it. Go buy some of Yannis's Hunt to Eat t-shirts. What's one of those good T-shirts cost, Giannis? $24.95. Yeah. We usually can get it shipped for just a couple dollars. And if Yanni's out of stock like he always is, just keep checking back because he'll buy two or three more and get them in stock. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay, on to the subject of, of hunting mountain lions. I have, I'm going to give my personal mountain lion resume. I've eaten three mountain lions which is the same number of mountain lions that I've seen in the wild, though I haven't eaten any of the ones I've seen in the wild. I ate all separate ones. There's this place outside of Missoula, Montana, called the Rock Creek Lodge, and every year they have something called the Testicle Festival, where they uh, serve, there's this whole big 
very hedonistic festival around serving deep fried nuts from castrated steers. They castrate steers in the spring, but it's in the fall. They must be freezing them. <laughs> Hope they keep well. I, I don't. I never. It, it seems like you do it around the time, right? But one time I was in there in the spring, and there was a pot of uh, pulled pork on the counter, and they weren't selling it. It was free. And I made myself a sandwich, and the guy told me that it was mountain lion. And um, he said, Rock Creek Lodge, balls in the fall, pussy in the spring. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that was one of the three mountain lions I've eaten. Another mountain lion I ate, my old girlfriend was in line in the hardware store in Wyoming, and the guy in front of her was buying a mountain lion tag. And she said, what are you going to do with the mountain lion? He said, I just want the hide. She said, we'll take all the meat. And sure enough, this dude called about a week later and gave us the whole mountain line. And uh, we ate that thing every which way. It's not bad. No, it's pretty good. It's, the it's, back straps on it are where it's at. Yeah, but it's all, you know, kind of a white meat that yeah, uh, surprising. resembles pork without the greasiness. Yeah. Pretty good stuff. It'll, it'll test the strength of your jaw. <laughs> <laughs> Often. So, so I, I'm joining this conversation by a, a real, live, actual, very serious um, lion hunter, Floyd Green. Um, Floyd owns like some things that that you might be familiar with that that I like to use and that you see often around um, wilderness athlete, outdoorsman's. But you've been a lion hunter longer than any of that stuff. Yeah, I started hunting lions the first time with some guys, and I was a teenager, you know, late teens, and I didn't have my own hounds till I was around twenty. But and you were you were born here. We're we're in Arizona right now, uh, in Scottsdale, and you were born here in Phoenix. And what was the lion hunting culture then? Like, how did you get into it? Well, I got into it actually up in Cholo, Arizona, up there building homes, and and the guys were headed out one day, and I, I just tagged along with them. And I'd always been, always had a lot of dogs and been around dogs my whole life. What was the reason you had them? I didn't have any lion hunting dogs then. They were, I had one coon hound and, and one mutt. Uh, but after spending time with those guys and watching them work with their dogs, and you know, the first time you see a lion climb a tree or you walk up to a tree and one is in it, it's just the buggy that generally bites people that really enjoy that. And yeah. uh, an amazing animal to be up close to like that. And it's a dog thing largely, too. Absolutely. But we can get into that. Absolutely. That's, if it wasn't for watching the young dogs transform and all the planning that goes behind putting your, your pack of dogs together or breeding the next group of puppies, you know, just seeing lions get killed is certainly not why people hunt lions. So how, how many years ago was it that you started hunting lions? It'd be early 80s, like 81, yeah. you know, somewhere right around. And 80s. then got your own dogs. Right. And that was, I had a lot, you know, I had my own dogs within a year of that time, but they wasn't a very successful group of dogs at that point in my life. Just uh, had a lot more dogs and we had lion catching going on. Yeah. What, what, one thing that Floyd does, like there, there's, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but basically you would divide lion hunting into two categories. It's hunting them in the snow. Right. Is that fair? It is. Uh, you know, or hunting them in where there's no snow. Well, hunting them in bare ground conditions is more challenging due to the fact that you, you rely on the dogs a lot more. So it takes a lot higher level of, of hound. 
uh, you know, you're in the snow, you're going to drive the roads, look for where a line's crossed in the snow. You can determine, generally determine to some degree how old that track is, certainly can determine which way it's going. With the hounds, when you're riding along on your mule or some guys do it off of a four-wheeler, however you may be doing it, and your dogs are free casting out in front of you, there's literally dozens of animals that they, they have the opportunity that they smell every step of the way they're smelling some different creature yeah and you're relying on them to let you know that they've they've crossed the lion's path and you may go you may go days before that happens in a lot of cases yeah my brother my older half brother was an elk guide in colorado for many years and he did some lion he had a guy one of his guides was a lion hunter and they would just you know have clients who wanted to come out and he would have a list of guys and he wouldn't call the client until he found the track. And guys would, because he would have some guys like, you got to be ready to go at the drop of a hat. And he'd call and a guy would like, get on a plane and come up from Dallas or whatever. And then they'd begin to hunt that line. And then he'd go chase that line. And I, and I don't, you know, in some parts of the country, there's just, uh, nobody even thinks about lion hunting until the snow falls. Yep. And part of that, you know, now with the wolves like they are, I, you know, they can really determine whether there's wolves in the area or not also. Before they turn their because the wolves will kill your dog, right? You know, those Canadian wolves are just a dangerous. You know, they're they're a, always a threat to the guys with hounds up there. And I don't know much about hunting in in the northern part of our country, but what I see of it, it's uh, you know, snow hunting can be very very challenging. It's, it can be really really tough physically. Mm. Some of the toughest hunts I've ever been on have been in the snow, just climbing around on snowy hillsides. You know, go fifteen miles in two foot of snow and in and out of the Grand Canyon a couple times and. You know, you have it's just a tough, tough hunt on everybody. But what, but what the snow gives you though? So when you when you go out and look for a line, let's let's just set this up first, so, so people get what we're talking about. When you go out and look for a line, how old does the track have to be? Like, what's the oldest track you can run? It, most, you know, that's a highly controversial subject. Uh, I would say mo- nobody's going to catch. You're going to catch. Very few lions that are over six to eight hours. You're six to eight hours behind them. Okay. So step one of a lion hunt, just for listeners, like step one of a lion hunt would be that you're going into likely lion country or a place a lion is likely to pass through, and you're trying to find either through the nose of your dog or from tracks in the snow or tracks on the ground, you're trying to find a place where a mountain lion came through, walked through within the last six to eight hours, ideally. I don't mean to harp on the snow thing too much, but it's just like it's just an interesting way to start thinking about some of the complexities of hunt lions because if there's snow on the ground, you know how big the lion was. Right. Generally, the, the speech or the, the gender. So you can tell that even. Right. Most and, of the time. And the best is you know what way it went. Absolutely. <laughs> we experienced that a time yeah. or two. It's, you know, knowing you're going the right way is, is 50% of the battle. Yeah, because the dog, like, a, like a, a, a famous thing people always say about, like, a good beagle is a beagle can zing back and forth on a rabbit track a couple of times, and he can tell relative freshness just on a short stretch, and he'll know what way the rabbit went. But with a lion, that's not, it takes him a little while longer to figure it out. Well, sometimes they, they, the tendencies of the dog, well, the rabbit's a hot, a hot scent track, type track, whereas a lion I would consider a cold. Oh, you mean hot like the rabbit just jumped up? Just was there. So yeah. it's much more obvious to that, that beagle which way that track's going because it's dissipating. 
And you. with a lion, that track may be laying there. You know, a lion when it walks, it's it's you know, it's offloading cells or spores, whatever you want to call them. That that that's what the dog is detecting. And for whatever reason, a lion leaves a scent longer than most animals, and it's uh, it, it's it's different in the sense that like with coon dogs, you know, coon dogs do the same thing as the beagles do on rabbits and they almost generally figure out which way that coon's going and go the right way. Gotcha. Lion hounds, there's, I, if I can't help them, then I let them make the decision. I don't ever try and out guess them, but I've sure gone the wrong way a lot of times. How far away you go the wrong way? Till the dogs become exhausted or the track burns out. And I've gone in, well, Chris, Mm-hmm. Well, the day we caught your lion, this is a lion that's caught. Floyd's talking to, to Chris Denham here, who hosts um, Western Hunter TV show and is a publisher. I never publisher. Remember yeah, that's a good publisher of uh, Western Hunter, Elk Hunter magazines. And um, Chris has done a fair bit of lion hunting with Floyd. That yeah. We uh, we took a, a a large male down in the uh, Catalina Mountains. And after the lion was shot, Chris had shot the lion, one of our, our better dogs turned around and trailed that track, the one that was now dead, backwards till six o'clock that evening and probably went 12 miles from where we started. Yeah. And back trailing the lion. Back trail. You know, I mean, there was no question about what went on, yeah. you know. <laughs> and, and we ended up catching up with her uh, in Canada del Oro. Yeah. Almost to the bottom of it. I, mean, I shot him at... It was April fifteenth. I remember it was tax day. We shot him. It was. It was. It's a crazy, crazy story. But in a shot him with an hour of daylight, and we were. We got to the bottom of Canyon Deloro and finally found that that dog at dark and came pretty much out in the dark. And it was fourteen hours probably. That dog was trailing back on that on that line. Yeah, because when we went out those couple times and looking. Even when the dogs would start running something, we were still spending a lot of time trying to find a track to verify what it was that they were after. Right. You know, a lot of these dogs, all of my dogs now, line numbers have dropped in the last five years, and, and all of my dogs have gotten to trailing bobcats, and they never used to do that. So now we have to determine, is it a bobcat or is it a lion? You know, and, and it's really hard to tell. If Why you, did your dogs start running bobcats? Well, you just, it's basically you would consider that a fault in a dog in a true bare ground lion hound, but almost all of them will at one time or another trail bobcats and foxes because you don't come across enough lion tracks to keep them, you know, they're going to, they're going to trail something, you know, and, and it's very hard to tell the difference between the two unless you've got the soil or you find some way to find a track as foxes and bobcats are everywhere lions are here in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's always been something of a problem. But the good news is typically fox and bobcat tracks, very similar to a, a coon or a, a, a rabbit, they, the track dissipates quickly. So typically... So you're least going to run in the right direction. Right. And typically, it, if they don't go anywhere, that's a good sign that it's probably not a lion. Oh, I got you. If you start moving it out I there, see what you're saying. It's not going to, like, he's not going to, they're not going to run an eight-hour-old track for very long. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, they won't run an eight-hour-old bobcat track or fox track. They won't. It's got to be fresh to get them in there. Within probably 30 minutes or an hour. Oh, is that right? Okay. Mm-hmm. What, um, between all the hunting you've done, like just hunting lines of people, and then all the stuff you've done with biologists, treating them for research purposes and tranquilizing them and whatnot, how many lines have you run? 
run or caught? Or how many lions have you caught? Like, like lion guys use the word caught for a lion whether you kill the lion or not. Right. Because the whole thing is catching it. Right. After that, it's, you know, shooting them kind of an anticlimactic end to the yeah. chase. The, uh, as far as lions I've caught, it's between three and 500. You know, it's always hard to, to put a number on that for me. A lot of them were caught with other hunters there and different situ- you know, circumstances and things like that. Some of them were lions that were caught multiple times and turned loose. You know, it's always challenging to figure out how to keep score. But there's been times in my life where we've caught as many as 25 lions a year for you know, several years in a row. And there's other years you catch, you know, my goal is always to catch 10 a year. But there's been a few years we haven't got that done. Is that right? Yeah. So maybe when you think about doing it for 30 years, that adds up to a pretty substantial number. As far as lions that I've trailed, it'd be, you know, thousands. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized I didn't drink anything all day, and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you 
to get hydrated. Doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. How many dogs do you take out to hunt a lion? I take as many as 13 at one time. I would prefer to take a half a dozen. That's an optimum number, four to six. And I've caught a lot of lions with one dog. You know, you just, it's, uh, but typically for a good, good fun hunt, the, the number I would pick would be five or six. But a lot of times we'll take all 13 of them just to help keep them in shape. Just oh, so, just exercise them? Yeah, so much about catching a lion has as much to do with the physical ability of the hound to persevere through a whole day of, day of trailing and then jump the lion and actually put enough pressure on it to get it to climb a tree. So if they're not in good physical shape and their feet aren't tough and they can't go, they, they got to be able to go 10, 12 hours. So lay out for me like how a lion hunt, lay out for me like how a successful lion hunt goes. You get up in the morning and like what happens? I know each time is different, but just like how might a hunt go? Well, Chris's yours is a classic, the, the one we were just talking about. We got up in the morning and uh, saddled the mules and, and rode out, rode up the very first. So you prefer to hunt out on a mule? Yeah, that'd be my preference by far. So you're, you're mounted, dogs running all around. And I can stay with my dogs a lot better. As, as good a shape as you feel like you are, it's hard after a few days to physically stay with them on foot on a regular basis. We covered an enormous amount of ground, I, fe- I felt, when I was out with you. I never hunted with a group of guys that was physically in the, in the shape that you guys were when we went. Joe and I were both absolutely amazed every night when we came in and and all the guys running the cameras, I mean, and running them backwards up the hills and in and, and super tough country. It was amazing. And, and normally guys just don't show up in that kind of physical condition. Uh, and we did go a long ways. I mean, there was a couple times we trailed lions and I was sure we had the one caught. Yeah. And, uh, and we didn't. But... Uh, that would have been even, that's a typical, although Joe started that one early for us, it was, uh, you know, the distance wasn't unusual, you know, to go. Do their far. collars, like the GPS, is their GPS, does it keep a track of the distance they run? Oh, yeah. Dog. These yeah. dogs look like satellites, man. They got like three collars on, <laughs> wires and stuff coming So what's an average day that the dog puts on? Well, the, the dogs, a minimum on an average day is 20 miles. So, you know, uh, and I've seen 30 five mile days you know that's right. not not a, not a crazy deal either but what gets tough is that's not hard for a good conditioned hound to do on any given day it's hard for that dog to do day after day after day mm-hmm. and that's where you see professional lion hunters guys that are guiding full-time or some of our government lion hunters that gets to be the difference between them and sport hunters is the condition of their dogs quality of the dogs obviously but the condition is huge where they can pursue a lion. They may trail a lion for three days before they overtake it and actually jump it. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not saying they're stopping the track and picking it up each day, but every day you learn more about that animal and you, you're getting closer to it. You're getting into a, 
a tighter area where it may be. Well, that third day, if you've been running... Like you're saying three days in a row, you might pick up where that lion was the night before. Absolutely. You'll go as he's hunting an area. Well, you won't pick up the exact spot, but, you, you know, the lion's traveling to the south. We've trailed him four miles in that direction down this drainage. We'll try and loop ahead of him and pick him up again. And typically with good broke dogs, when you, when you cross his track, you know, you, they'll let you know, verify the direction and go again. Mm-hmm. Sooner or later, that lion's going to kill something or he's going to lay up somewhere. And that's when you'll overtake him. Once he gets a belly full or is that, he's, is that because he's stopping to eat? Or because he's just hungry, because he's full and doesn't run as good? No, well, it's because he stopped traveling. Oh, okay. You know, he just finally, because, you know. Because then he's camped out on the carcass and he's there for And so I think this is an important point, because I think I was, like, under the wrong impression, too. Because I always, everybody, or in my head, it's like you start out, and it's like as soon as you're on a track, you're like dogs are chasing this lion, but it's not that way. This lion is just out and about doing its thing for maybe three or four days, and eventually your hounds just catch up to it. Right. And it, for those prior, like that, the those prior three notice days, going those on. dogs never got close. And it seems so exciting because those hounds are so excited and they're balling and carrying on that you feel like you're, you're, the lion's up and running from you. But that cat might not even know about you and your dogs. Absolutely. That's a, more, more often than not, when you're trailing a lion... There was only one instance that I thought maybe we had a lion jumped, and that was that large tom in, in the Galeros. Yeah. That, that, uh, and I believe he outran us. I think that lion left the country. Um, but uh, almost every other lion, we, those lions probably never knew we were even in the vicinity. Yeah, I, think, they, I think my lion was a classic because we were riding, it was the third day, and we had done the same loop the first two days, you know, probably a 15, 18 mile loop. You know, just, just through lazy country. Yeah, just in working the same, you know, the same uh, trails and just kind of working out old tracks. And the third day we left camp and we weren't, what, a mile from camp? And all of a sudden the dog struck, I mean, and, you know, and, and struck hard. And we'd been through that exact canyon the two days previous. We knew that lion track wasn't there two days before, so we knew, you know, this is fresh. So you knew that the lion had walked, you were sleeping and a lion passed through a mile from where you were sleeping. Yeah, right. So then, what happened on that hunt? Oh, it got it got pretty crazy after that. But uh, uh, it, we were right in the bottom of a canyon, and uh, it, it, the dogs kept trying to. They were going back and forth, and we found a find a scratch and figured out the can the the scratch was saying the lion was going up the canyon. Yeah, back up and explain what you mean by that. Oh, with the lions will scratch. Floyd can explain a little more about what a scratch is, but where they're where they they're marking their territory, the toms, and they use their front feet and they they pull it. They pull the the soil up over top of where they've urinated and, and they create a uh, uh it's just a pile of of leaf litter or whatever it's in the bottom of that little canyon and and you can see it from a good distance it's usually like what maybe six ten inches long and like in likely little places like you can anticipate like when we were out we kept looking at it after a while i'd be like that's a place where he would do that yeah you know like we're two two uh you're in a canyon and a tributary comes in it was like a leafy area or something you know big pine trees yeah and so we do this, we figure the lines, we know that from the direction of the scratch, he's probably going up the canyon, but the dogs keep trying to, they, they go up and then they turn around, they want to come back. They want to keep wanting to come back. And finally one dog went, tried to, went up and around us to get around us because we're trying to pull the dogs and push them the other direction. And then all of a sudden he struck and we figured out afterwards that we probably literally jumped that lion out of that canyon. Oh. And, and he went, he scratched and then went right up and over the top. And, uh, 
So anyways, we got down, up over the top, and uh, uh, do you want me to tell the whole story? Yeah. Okay. It's, it's a pretty good story. No, it is, because yeah. this is explaining how a lion hunt goes. Yeah. So keep in mind the miles, keep in mind miles here so people can get a perspective of, like, the scale. Okay. This one actually happened pretty, you know, pretty quick in a short amount of time, but so that we know the lion went up and over top this ridge, maybe a three, four hundred foot elevation, half mile over the top. And we got up to the top and, and we can hear the dogs barking down the bottom just, but it's kind of crazy barking. And, uh, Floyd split off to get a bit, little bit different angle and I stayed with the mules. And, uh, and Floyd calls me, you can hear the dogs barking down there. And Floyd calls me on the radio and he says, Chris, this lion's coming right to you. Get off. You know, so I jump off my mule and I get my pistol out and I'm standing there like, you know, with my pistol out in front of me, just waiting for a lion to come up. Uh, anyways, another dog came up there and, and all of a sudden that lion took off and went back down and back into the other hounds. And, uh, but you can see this happen. No, Floyd can see this happen and I can't see this. So he bails down to where the, where the dogs are and, uh, and I'm just kind of standing up on top of the mules, just trying, just waiting for, you know, for Floyd to tell me what the heck's going on. And all of a sudden, I just hear this voice down in the bottom of the canyon. And, and it would be, it would, we would go from R-rated to X-rated if I actually told you everything he was yelling at me. But it was like, Chris, get your ass down here. I can just hear him just yelling at me. And I got a radio in my hand. In the, in the part that Chris in- just for everybody listening, this lion is very unusual. It has gone by about 50 trees that it could have gone in, from oak trees to juniper trees, and it's fighting the dogs on the ground, which is really unusual for a mountain lion. And it's fighting them like a jaguar or a bear would fight them. Mm. And it's winning. I mean, it's mucking them out. And, oh, really? Oh, it was, I mean, it. we stapled and stitched dogs for hours after this, this whole program but Floyd's getting to see this I was I was wanting Chris to hurry down there yeah so he's seeing he's seeing all this and I'm just trying like trying to piece it all together in my head so I go bailing off the ridge you know down to where all the screaming's coming from and uh I've got shaps on that are too long for me I'm stumbling and falling and 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 I get there and there's a big oak tree in the very bottom below me and there's a bluff I'm standing on top of and, and right in, underneath the oak tree, I can see just a muck of dogs and Floyd screaming and the lion screaming and, and, uh, on the ground. On the ground. I mean, they're, With a they're perfectly good tree there. Yeah. Perfectly under a huge, perfect tree. So I literally, I, I kind of jump off that little bluff through the tree and I land on the ground and, uh, and I get there and there's a washout underneath the tree and that washout's filled up with oak leaves. And all I can see is Floyd with a big stick in his hand in the bottom of this washed out oak leaf like pool and uh there's the lion floyd's got this big huge stick in his hand and one end is the lions hanging on to one end and there's dogs just jumping in this lion's just got paws going everywhere claws going everywhere and and with a stick in his mouth you know floyd's yelling at me shoot him shoot him (laughs) so i go sliding in the hole and i grab i have my pistol in my hand and i'm i'm literally from meteor foot like three feet from the lion and dogs are jumping in there, and I'm g- trying to grab dogs to, to get a clear shot. And Floyd, meanwhile, is covering his face because he knows the bullet's going to create some kind of splash. We're all so close. He's, you know, he, meanwhile, the stick's broken off between his hands, so now he's down to two hands hanging onto the stick like a, a fishing rod with a big, you know, with a sailfish on the end. And, and I sh- shoot the lion through the shoulder and from, you know, from three feet. There's no way I missed and Floyd picks a cover, uncovers his eyes, and he looks at the lion. He looks at me, and the lion's still doing the same thing he was doing before I shot him. 
So he yells at me, shoot him again. <laughs> so I shoot him again. And then the, then the, finally the lights go out and you know, on the lion, he's just dead. And, you know, the dogs are piling in there. And I mean, it was just utter, complete chaos. But what had happened is they, they, with those oak leaves in that pool, nobody could get any traction to get out of there. And I'll tell you, you tell what, what happened with your pistol. Well, I was, I mean, Chris, Chris, Chris wanted to shoot the lion. I didn't want to shoot it and use my tag. But it, when I looked down in there, it was just all the dogs were, they were getting killed. I mean, they were, this lion was grabbing one. It wasn't, if there hadn't been a group of those dogs there, that he would have surely killed numerous dogs. Yeah. And, and he was big. He was one of the few 160-pound lions that I've caught in my life. With, and, 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 I mean, it was a big, big male that just didn't have any fear of us or the hounds or anything else. Anyhow, when I slid down in there, I had my pistol in my hand and just, you know, your slide, and I, I jammed it into the dirt. And I just didn't want to, you know, I didn't know if it was full of dirt or not. Yeah, you don't want to shoot it. And I had that stick with me. Typically, when lions are wounded, they'll bite down on a stick like that. I never really had to deal with one that had not, that wasn't wounded before, but it did the same thing. And Chris got there about the same time it bit down on the stick, but that's what I was using to beat the dogs and it back, trying to get them separated. Oh, I got you. And that's how the stick got in its mouth. So do you lose a lot of dogs to lions? No. Uh, if you Typically, you lose them to the bluffs, you know, and falling off of things more gotcha. than lions. Uh, this last year, we had a dog, uh, a lion, another lion similar to, to Chris's that, that, you know, busted the skull on one dog's head and had another one in his skull, you know, his, the, the hound's head in its mouth, and I shot it. But, you know, it would have killed some dogs. But we, you know, I've only lost maybe four or five over 30 years directly to a lion like that. Getting them. Right. I think think this was you that I asked this one time. I was asking you if if you ever have any problem, like when you're bringing in dogs that have been tore up by lions, if the vets ever frown on you. And I think you told me you went and found a vet who likes to hunt lions. Well, there's, we, we have a, he's retired now, but yeah, we have a local vet here in town that, that and there's a couple of them that, that are, uh, that are lion hunters. And they, so they understand. They understand. Yeah, yeah. They're good about it. <laughs> and even the, you know, the clinic we use now, I would, you know, they're certainly not what I would consider hunting oriented or anything like that. And they're always there for us, but there are a lot of people that frown on it. You know, I remember one time I went into an emergency clinic with one of my hounds and it would. It had had a gastric torsion where its stomach had turned. And it was a great dog, and I was really worried about losing it. And this pudgy little veterinarian told me that the the dog uh, she did obviously didn't believe in hunting, mm-hmm. and she told me she was going to turn me into the Humane Society or the Sheriff's Department for mistreatment of animals, and I, because my dog was was in such poor shape physically, and uh, she was probably fifty pounds overweight, and. I pointed out to her that you didn't see any fat people winning the Olympics either. <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, that didn't help our relationship. Uh, they did save the dog. <laughs> but, yeah, every once in a while you get into those clinics and yeah. you run into that. There's a lot of people that disapprove of lion, you know, hunting with hounds, and they think that it's unfair to hunt lions. Oh, all the time. It's like one of the lion hunts, one of the things that when anti-hunting groups, anti-hunting money, humane society, a lot of the money comes from other organizations. When they look at what they can go after, that's one of the things they go after. Like, you'll, like I remember reading this thing where it was a 
series of polls on acceptance of hunting. And I remember reading one in Arizona where if you just asked people, do you support, you know, a person's right to hunt, okay? And it was surprising to me. I, remember, I can't remember exactly, but it was somewhere on the lines of like, you know, like 74, 75% of people supported it. But the, anytime you ask them a specific thing, the acceptance rate would go down. So people like the idea, but you say like, okay, how about, you know, hunting, like bow hunting? Much less, okay? Any, no matter what specific inquiry you put to them, it was always like less people approved of the specific than it did the concept. And when you want to go after something, you, it, you can make the case pretty easy, and they've done it effectively in several states now, you can make the case pretty easily that it's real bad to hunt lions with dogs. Absolutely. We've lost it in Washington, California, Oregon. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why, like, I... I I, I guess I kind of get what they're thinking, but I think that they're thinking that the dogs are doing all the work, or I don't like. What is the? Have you ever gotten a sense in your? Well, it's you know I always kind of it's it's always tough for me to approach those people. Whenever people have a strong opinion about something that they have no knowledge about, you got to almost assume that you're dealing with an idiot. Yeah. So at that point, the discussion for me becomes hard to engage. And I'll sit down with some people and talk to them about it. But the one thing I always tell people is, you know, in my life that, you know, I learned to fly a helicopter in 30 days, can run multiple businesses. Everything is relatively easy compared to getting up in the morning and saying, oh, I'm going to go catch a mountain lion today. So it's really insulting when somebody says it's not sportsmanlike or it's, it's unfair because they have no, it just they haven't got a clue. Yeah. You know, when you look at that and you think about that being put to a ballot or an initiative, I can make the case. You know, lions are very probably the most noble creature in the woods, probably certainly one of the most beautiful. And when people look at that, they say, how could you go kill that animal? Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in, in wildlife management, all animals have to be managed. There's not, you don't get to pick and choose which ones you do or don't manage. So I, I get really, you know, I, I understand how they make the case. I could probably do a lot better job than they do, but it's mostly they don't understand how sporting it is. Yeah. That's, you know, it used to be the sport of Kings chasing hounds and it was chasing Mm -hmm. foxes in England. Yeah. A thing that I find works for people, it's like, it's helpful when you're like sort of conceptualizing what kind of hunting is, is acceptable or not acceptable or, or or likely to be shot down in, in a public battle or not. Um, I'm stumbling around this, but but there's like a sort of a thing like a traditional use, okay? So in areas where people have traditionally hunted lions with dogs, I would tend to think, and I think most people agree, that you would continue doing what was traditional. So if you had an area, like there's states where you've never been able to bait, to set out bait for black bears, okay? Like you can't bait black bears in Montana for instance. It's been like that for a long time now. I'm not like uh, pressing, you know, I'm not encouraging someone to legalize baiting bears in Montana because the way it was set, it was set from a wildlife management issue. It was set from a traditional use issue and they have a system that works, you know, 
But it's like when you start taking away traditional use practices, that's more upsetting to me, and that like makes me more suspicious than preventing new practices from entering the realm. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. That's- and I think, I think it's something that like comes up all the time. Like when, when guys down south, like for me, like I, I grew up in the upper Midwest. No one hunts deer with dogs. If you went and said, we're going to start a new rule, you can hunt deer with dogs. People, particularly deer hunters, would be up in arms. Okay, They'd be like burning buildings down <laughs> over this. Meanwhile, you can hunt deer with dogs in the southeast, many states. It's just what they've done. You know, and you have to kind of respect traditional use practices, I think. And the thing with lions is because of the way lions behave when they're active, how they travel, you just, you can kill them with predator calls, kind of. Now and then a guy will run into one and shoot it. But it's like you hunt lions with dogs. To stop dog hunting for lions, you're basically saying you can't hunt lions. Correct. Basically. And I know, like, in South Dakota, like, guys call them in a little bit, you know. Well, it, we just got the, the data back for our 2014 harvest here. and I believe there was 200, and these are round numbers, but 270 lions harvested, and at least 230 of those were with the aided hounds. Is that right? You know, and, and uh, I say 230, maybe it's just over 220, 230, somewhere in there. But basically, you when you remove hound hunting from the scope of wildlife management. Lion, hunting lions with hounds from the scope of wildlife management, you've effectively removed your ability to manage lions, whether it's to benefit a sheep or deer or any other prey species. So now, California is a great example. Go to California and try and find a deer. Yeah. They thought they had a lion hunting problem. Now they got a lion problem. <laughs> <laughs> And, and right now we're seeing a decline in the lion numbers in the western states, at least in the states I'm familiar with, which are Utah, Nevada, New Mexico, and Arizona. Lion numbers are far lower now than they were five years ago. And we've got, you know, I, I'd hate to guess, I'd say that there's a third to half the lions that we had five to ten years ago. But it really doesn't have anything to do with hunting pressure. It has more to do with a cyclic following prey bases, and, and everything cycles. And all wildlife animal or species do, but they're definitely down now. It's one of the things we've encountered, like when we were on. The- That's weird because they're having like an ex- like outside of this area, they're having they're experiencing an expansion of range. Right, right. Like Throughout expanding, yeah, expanding into more urban areas, expanding into states that you have traditionally not had them. And I would question too whether those states have or haven't had them. The advent I mean, they ha- everywhere has had them. Yeah. Well, but the advent of trail cameras have given us a lot more documentation. You know, there's always been claims of lions in Maine. Yeah. And everybody thought, you know, somebody was just seeing things. But now with trail cameras, you know, it's obviously a more, much more documented yeah. situation. And, and they are, and I do believe they are expanding the range. A very dynamic, very healthy population of lions in the United States. Yeah, and that expansion's a lot less if you take out young males. Like, if you were to draw a map of where females were showing up, that map's not nearly as big as where males are showing up. So a lot of times when you find these, when these lions are coming out of the eastern U.S., and people used to say, like, oh, it's a runaway pet. You'd be like, there's a hell of a lot of people with mountain lion pets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at this point. Pets. 
But now they're finding, you know, that these are like these male mountain lions that are traveling several states over, coming out of the Black Hills, you know, turning up in crazy places. And researchers term those as transient lions, and they're almost always males. And males tend to be the ones that get in the most trouble. Uh, a friend of mine that works for the government is, I think it was 500 lions were removed in a, I forget how many year period of time, but the vast majority of them were males. Yeah. And, and that's typically what you see there. They're the ones that get in the most trouble. Do you tree more males and females? They're easier to tree. And, and I would say, yes, we do. Why are they easier to treat? You know, they leave more scent. Uh, they travel the country. The example I always use is a guy going into a, a store and buying something. He goes in and he gets what he wants and he comes back, he's gone. He hits straight line in, straight line out. You send your girlfriend or your wife in there, she might be in there an hour to do this, get the same thing and wander all over the damn store. That's how female lions are. So it makes them much more challenging to trail, and they leave less scent. Gotcha. So, they, you know, it's just uh, it, the males are generally much like in the case of Chris's lion that day. That son of a gun came right straight down that canyon for two or three miles. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, when we were going backwards trying to find the dog, we saw every place that he scratched and every mark that he made along there. But, and by the way, I'd say they, they use their hind feet most of the time. It was just hind feet. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's always been, but there's an awful lot of pictures on trail cameras now of them using the hind feet. <laughs> but, uh, and they use both. But, but sometimes they use their front feet too. You know, there's a story, I, I know I told you this in the past, Floyd, where in the 1930s, in Florida, it was generally accepted that the Florida Panther was gone. You know, there was rumors of sightings in the same way that now they could take some state like Missouri or something where like now and then a guy will see one. Everybody tells him he's crazy, right? It, that was the situation in Florida, but there was some guys who just knew they were there. And there's a story where a guy, in some, somewhere in the early 30s, I think it was, he got in touch with some houndsmen in Arizona and they came out and within a couple of weeks had killed seven lions in Florida. At which point we said, okay, <laughs> we get the point. And like the guy was just basically saying, stop telling me there's no lions in Florida. <laughs> and, and I don't remember who the lion hunter was, but that could have been one of the Lee brothers or any number of, you know, there was a lot of famous lion hunters. I went, I went and reread it because you had mentioned there were some famous lion guys. I went and reread it. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't name the name of the guy that came. Well, a man out of Texas, his name, and there's a whole family of them, the McBrides, and Roy McBride is the one that, I believe they, I don't remember where, maybe out of Texas, that they took uh, lions back to Florida and infused them into that population yeah. and, and helped to help bring it back around and some fresh genetics in there. Yeah. But yeah, that's been a, a dynamic population down there now, and it seems like they've got a very healthy population. Yeah, it's doing better now, and it was a funny thing because... When we talk about mountain lions, we're talking about, there's so many names. So, mountain lion, cougar, puma or puma, catamount. Catamount. That's one you don't hear very often. Yeah. I mean, that, that was like a older term in the East, primarily, was catamount. Um, it's all the same thing. And, and so, like, again, like, you go back to the time of European contact, these things were everywhere. Right, you know, coast and, to coast. Yeah, there was no real division, so there was probably no genetic barrier, really, when you factor like how much they could travel, how many places they were. There was probably no genetic barrier between the ones in Florida 
and the ones in Washington State. They're just lions, you know. Um, When the lion population in Florida got so low, people made an argument that um, they were talk they were talking like a a subspecies, and it's this constant like in in biology you have this constant like lumping and splitting, but people were arguing that you had this like subspecies in Florida, and it it would damage it somehow to bring you know blood in from somewhere else, but they did. Yeah, and, 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 you know, it, literally every mountain range can have its own subspecies if you get carried away just because the yeah. animals may or may not ever travel out yeah. of that. And they had the same kind of thing. They, they called it the Yuma Puma here in Arizona. And, and all it was was a lion that was geographically isolated, just like the Florida panther. And at that point, they will take on their own genetic characteristics, but they're still all mountain lions. Yeah, and those things in Florida were having, they needed genetic diversity brought in so bad, they were like, their tails were shaped wrong, and just all kinds of problems. Too much inbreeding. And it was a funny thing, because like, you look at people who argue in favor of the existence of Bigfoot, okay, that you've had, you know, like people say, oh, there's Bigfoots in the UP, you have Bigfoots in California, Bigfoots in Washington, Bigfoots in Oregon, so you got a sizable population. You must, right? Yeah, they're everywhere. (laughs) <laughs> and they've been here continuously now since people would argue pre before the arrival of Native Americans across the Bering Land Bridge. Um, no one's hit one with a car yet. <laughs> no one has a trail camp. But, well, but in Florida, just like take just like the dead on the street thing. Okay, in Florida, at a point they were down to a known like forty-seven or fifty mountain lions in Florida. And every year, they're losing multiple cats to getting hit by cars. And this is in the Everglades. Where there's not a huge abundance of roads. And you got 50 of a species, and you're hitting several a year with cars. That, to me, is the greatest argument against the existence of Bigfoot. (laughs) If you could be hitting like a significant percentage of mountain lions with cars every year, but no one's run into one of these things. A real one. It's always like it's like a real dead one that we can just show around. I, I run into people occasionally that actually believe that there is. You know, I mean, I have two in my life that I can think of that were dead serious about it, and I. And it generally goes back to an experience they had out in the woods mm-hmm. where they saw something that they thought was Bigfoot, but. I've spent 30 years of my life riding through the state of Arizona staring at the ground. I've never seen anything that even came close to looking like Bigfoot. Well, this isn't Bigfoot country. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. but, I mean, that's probably true. We don't, we don't have a lot of sightings here. Yeah, yeah. Um, what is some of the work you've done with going out with government people or biologists or whatever to, like, get lines? Well, the, the bulk of it was... is probably the late 80s. I haven't done uh, much in the last 10 or 15 years, but it would be the studies over by Wickenburg and over in that area in the, in the desert country and uh, from Wikiup and, and all through the, the western portion of our state over there. Well, they do. They hire you just to put lions into trees. Yeah, well, there was, it was hired in one case and then in the others generally volunteering my time because it was all, the, typically the biologists were friends of mine and people like that that, yeah. that, that knew us. But... Uh, you, in, in, those, in those places, you almost always put them up in a rock, you know, on a bluff. And they'd dart them, put a collar on them. And then a lot of times, we'd have to go back out and change collars. You know, and the, back in those days, the telemetric systems weren't what they are today. And we certainly didn't have any satellite stuff. So it was all, they would change them. Which, you know, those lions get to be 
pretty savvy after you have to do that with him a couple times. Because like, if a lion trees once and gets caught, he's less likely to tree again the second time. Right, he darn sure not going to tree as easily, typically. Uh, particularly, I say that the females seem to be worse than the males, but uh, you know, Julie and I this year had a, a male lion that, uh, well, we, we started the track in the morning at six or seven in the morning and went from Arizona to New Mexico, eight miles as the crow flies, air, air miles, eight miles, and at three o'clock in the afternoon, the lion was across the canyon from us, the actual Mule Creek Canyon yeah. drainage, and we could see the lion. It was laying on the side of the, the rim, looking back, watching the dogs come. And that turned into a second pack of dogs in that process. So that lion wasn't gonna be caught. And then we watched, I mean, we saw it twice that day. You never caught it? Never caught it. In fact, the uh. second time we saw it, I called a friend of mine that owned the ranch, and he came and got on the track with the lions and the dogs, and you know we ended up getting caught up with him and getting the hounds stopped. But that lion, I doubt that that lion will ever be caught by hounds. And it's obviously learned that. That's a learned. Because he's just not going to go into a tree. Right. And, and what they do is they get out in front of the dog. In that case, he would get about, I'd say it was a half mile. He started moving again, and they start trotting. And for whatever reason, typically it's, there's a lot of different theories behind it, but a lion that is trotting or running is much harder for a dog to trail if the scent has landed on the ground. If the scent's still floating in the air and the hound can take it out of the air, it can really put some pressure on, on an animal. Mm -hmm. But as soon as that scent that's in the air dissipates, the dog has to go back to smelling it on the ground. And now the scent and the spores that were very evenly laid because the lion was casually walking are now in bounded piles where it's landing if it's jumping or even when it's trotting it's just dispersing those those cells elsewhere for it so it makes it harder for him to trail it yeah mm. and, and there again that's when it comes into the case if the dogs are in good enough shape i thought mine were in really good shape at that time but there are there are guys that hunt that uh that do it professionally that their dogs might have been in better shape and put more pressure on that cat and made it climb a tree. Yeah. But it was a long day. <laughs> so when you saw that land across the canyon, what do you mean? You just looked over and there he was? Julie saw it. And she came wanted me to shoot it. And I, of course, I had a pistol. And I told her, I said, I wasn't going to be able to shoot it. And she filmed it. She filmed it over there laying under the tree. And it did its mouth hanging wide open. It's like how many yards away? 150, 175. It's one of those, it's just, you know, real abrupt, bluffy canyon. And then you saw it get back up and start going? Right. As the dogs closed in? And the dog, and it laid down under a big pine tree. It was interesting to watch this. The, the dogs, there was three dogs coming. And we, we knew, you know, they were all, we knew which dogs they were. And they were coming fast. When they got to the tree, they thought the lion had gone up the tree. Because the scent was so strong. Oh, yeah. So they fooled around there for another five minutes or so while the lion's just getting farther ahead. And going and going. And, yeah. And I'm sure it got ahead of And now the hounds never quit going. So, you know, the lion's doing this where it's running for a while, and then it'll go through a really rough spot and then take a break. Mm -hmm. And it just, it was, they're a lot smarter than people think they are. That's, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that'll make the case that a cat's IQ is greater than that of a dog. And I never really thought that most of my life, but, you know, some of these experiences like that really make you think about it. Yeah. 
I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home... Well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying? I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater. Make sure you use code MeatEater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. Have you encountered uh, well, let me let me go back to to, to the to the biology thing. So you guys would go out and catch them with the collar on. Does that make it super easy to catch a lion when you got a, a, a telemetry deal? Yes. 
typically when you do that... You just know where he is and when he's there. Right, right. Uh, it's, you know, half of the hunt is trying to locate a track a lot of times. I got you. And, you know, once you locate the track, then you start trailing the lion. And, we're, you know, really when you have the collar on a lion like that, you're going to a spot to, to catch the lion. I'm, I'm with you. With fresh dogs. and So it's a lot different. So what happens between when you run the line and the lion doesn't know you're after him, he's just going about his business. When you say jump a lion, what do you, like what happens when they jump the lion? That just means the lion is now aware of dogs. That means we've come to the place, you know, the lions, they travel a, a great deal early afternoon, late evening, and then again they travel some in the morning, but most of their traveling starts about three or four in the afternoon and then probably eight, nine o'clock that, you know, they're they're either laying up somewhere or I, I you know, I've learned a lot from people's trail cam photos. They just don't travel as much as I thought they traveled all night. And they don't. It seems like the sweet spot for them is that early evening stuff. So if you started to track the like daylight hours. Right. So most of their traveling is daylight hours. That gray light type stuff. Yeah. And and you're liable to see them at any time. But the uh, the evening, early evening, and in that you know eight nine o'clock seems to be the time that they do most of their hunting. So if you're picking up on one of those tracks, you're now say you hit it at seven or eight o'clock in the morning. You're twelve hours behind this thing, so yeah. it's going to be a grind. And if it's a male, you, and the conditions are right, like this time of year, those males put off a lot more scent, and the trailing conditions are a lot better than say if it was in September or, yeah. or in, in October. Gotcha. But uh, when you, you'll, you know, the dogs are barking and trailing, doing 100 miles of what we did together. When they get to where that lion's laid up, that lion jumps and runs, now that track's very fresh. And a lot of times they're taking it out of the air. They'll be chasing that lion and it just, you can tell the dogs have jumped it. It just, the intensity and, the, and their excitement. And some dogs that may not have barked all day will all of a sudden be joining in. And that's when you know they've jumped the lion and that's, that's when the race is on. And sometimes it'll just last to the bottom of the canyon, uh, and then sometimes it may be a mile. Or but it generally is it typically a normal lion. It would be over. That's you know you would expect to get it caught at that point. And when you when he's getting caught, what's he usually going into? Trees or rock piles? In Arizona, we probably catch them fifty percent of them in the rocks. Hmm. Do they go into holes? Oh yeah, mine shafts, all kinds of. And it's, I think that cats just wander through their domain throughout time because they seem to find the craziest places to go get in. And they also seem to know how to get out of them. <laughs> and we, Dave Martin's lion, the fellow that puts the rim to rim on this year, lion, Joe Mitchell called and said, you know, we're coming your way. And, and anyhow, when they, he actually saw the lion get up and go in the rock pile. He was above us. And we hiked up to where the rock pile was, and Dave and Joe were standing on one side of the rock pile, and I watched the lion come out the other side. And when I say a rock pile, it's probably a 75-yard long pile of boulders. Mm-hmm. And that lion traveled through that maze of boulders and come out somehow on our side. And oh. fortunately for all of us that were hunting the lion, I had dogs with me and saw it, and then we got Joe's dogs over there and managed to get it in a tree. But, you know, that, that lion, that's how smart they are. Like underground passageway. Yeah. yeah, it had an underground passageway. And the lion had gotten away the week before doing something similar to that. Oh, okay. You know, but they're, they're cats. You know, they probably spend their lifetime prowling around yes. in that mountain 
investigating all those nooks and crannies and that kind of thing. I was hunting. How often, can I, no, quick no, question, no. how often can you jump on like that and be on like a hot track where there, where you're like, the, the chase is on, but then you don't get them treed? You know, it's happened once this year, you know, out of a dozen lions. Half a dozen. Yeah, so it's, uh, it typically, when they jump a lion, you should catch it. But you just never know. It's you know that's kind of what makes it exciting. Now the lions have definitely this you know as the numbers of lions decrease, the lions that are in existence are just smarter. Mm-hmm. Genetically, you know whether it's a genetic thing or a learned trait from having been hunted or whatever it may be, they they certainly seem to be jumping and running and they're evolving more in that sense. Yeah. I recently I have a dog out in the backyard. You haven't seen Steve. That's. Uh, a friend of mine out of Wisconsin helped me acquire, and they call them lurchers, but it's half border collie and half stag hound. And his only job is to handle those kinds of things. And he's just a physical specimen as far as an animal that super high intelligence and unbelievable physical ability. And he just meant to handle a jumped lion. Right. Jumped lions, lions that, that do things that the hounds, the, the hounds typically, if one jumps and they're looking at it, they, they, they handle that very well. But this dog would be more along the lines of, with his intelligence and the fact that he isn't a trail hound, when he thinks we might be getting close to a place where we're going to jump a lion, he gets out and he's he spends a lot of time doing things that the hounds aren't doing, trying to get the jump on that lion. Is that right? Oh. He's kind of like just kicks up the intensity just a little bit. And- right. He doesn't even normally leave us until he thinks they might be getting close to catching it. <laughs> and then all of a sudden he'll just disappear. But he, and I don't know, I mean, I never am there right when it happens, but I feel like he has definitely helped. I know that he helps when they jump in the tree jump type stuff. He doesn't really do a lot of things like a hound does, but he never quits looking at them. And, you know, when like that lion hits, and he's only seen maybe 10 or 15 lions now. When that lion heads out to a tree limb, he looks like he's trying to catch a pop fly. You know, I mean, he's right there trying, he knows oh, really? what he's going to do. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's anticipating it the whole way. Yeah. And your dogs might be oblivious to the fact that the lion's leaving the tree. Yeah, no, they some are, but most of them kind of get that, but they tend to be more reactive, and the border collie in him is, you can see the intelligence factor there. Yeah. You know, you're talking about that lion going underground, you know, and coming out in our spot. We were hunting pigs, wild pigs in New Zealand with dogs, and the guy had the GPS collars on the dogs. And all of a sudden his dogs just vanish off of his, he's not getting on his unit, he's not getting their signal anymore. And we start going in the direction we'd last heard him. And then now and then it'd be like, it'd pop, the dog would pop up. One of the dogs would be like, oh, there it is. But then it'd go away. And it was because this pig had gone down into a tunnel. The dogs went in. And, and the, well, yeah, it wasn't getting satellite reception anymore on his collar. But then the pig wound up getting stuck in the tunnel. So the dogs are just down there holding on to the pig's tail, and no one's coming out of that hole. Wow. So we went up digging a shaft down to the pig and pulled it up with dogs still hanging off it <laughs> on the other end. Like, the dogs were just never going to give up. Yeah, no, they, you know. That's, a good, that's generally your best dogs, you know. The ones that quit early and all that, those are the ones that you, you probably wonder if you shouldn't find them a good home. But those that, and, and unfortunately, those a lot of times are the dogs that get killed because they jump off bluffs after 
their quarry or whatever it may be. But those are the good ones. Yeah. It's kind of funny you talk about, um, it's like we have this, such this weird relationship with dogs in this country where on some, uh, on some level we want to bestow on them like human characteristics, you know, and that they have almost like human rights. But then how can you then tell the dog that he shouldn't want to hunt lions? Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like an honest question I always think about is um, if you really are, like, let's say you're like adamant, you know, you're a vegan, right? Do you think that wolves should stop killing? Well, I mean, no one's ever actually answered this question for me. But you know what I mean? It's like, who are we to tell a dog that he don't want to hunt that lion? Well, think about 90% of your animal rights people are, are cat and dog lovers that have some form of an animal in their home. And if they let that animal be wild for one second, it would go back to going to killing its own, yeah. particularly cats. Yeah. Like, you don't need to talk the dog into wanting to hunt lions. Right. They get up in the... Some just do it. That's, yeah. No, that's, I mean, and that's what really probably the, the breeding of those dogs is the single most important part. Is, is to breed that drive and desire and those, those characteristics into them. I'm fortunate enough, a, a, a man here in Arizona that's hunted lions his entire life named Steve Smith and, and a man that's mentored me is Jim Bueller out of Nevada. Those guys, have, the breeding that they've created, I've been the beneficiary of, and it's a game changer for you as a lion hunter to have those genetics that where that dog get you know, when it's the day it's born, it's, it's almost as though they want to hunt lions. So you've got dogs that come from generations of dogs that have been selected, like selectively bred for lion hunting. Decades, 30, 40 years. Yeah. Did you, were you hunting lions at all during the bounty days when you could get a bounty on lions? No, that was, uh, that was in the 1960s. I think they late 60s that went away here. So if you refer to that, they're talking about way ago. When you would just right, like back. turn in the scalp on that lion. Right. And it's... And there was guys that, and we still to this day have government guys that are on payroll to do that to protect the livestock industry. You know, some of these lions just, they can wreak havoc. Uh, in Nevada, I know Jim Bueller's dealt with, uh, you know, as many as, as 20 and 30 sheep killed in one, one evening. Mm-hmm. And, and there's numbers where they're much higher than that, but that's not a crazy thing to see. I, uh, Julie and I showed up one time and, and the lion had killed 12 sheep that day. Is that right? Yeah, and it just looks like a massacre. And, and I, I'm not sure why they do it. You know, they, I, I think they just get be like a largemouth bass eating shad. You know, I mean, they just get to kill them. Did the, the lion, did you guys catch the lion that killed all those sheep? We did. I remember when I was a kid, I used to read Trapper and Predator Caller magazine. I remember an article in there, it was called like the $100,000 lion. And it was because they had done a bighorn sheep transplant. Oh, yeah. And then a lion killed all the sheep they transported in, you know that they brought into this area i feel like it was in arizona well there's been of course the the brilliance of our game and fish department here to transplant sheep on a mountain called lion mountain <laughs> this is back in the days when they didn't acknowledge that lions had an effect on sheep which in the last decade they have certainly come light years around on that but even today we have uh the, the Derringers are just world-class lion hunters here in Arizona are working on the Aravipa sheep herd to preserve it. Another man, Jim Bedlin's done a lot of work. Steve Smith's done a lot of work in Unit 22 here. 
to bring back those sheep that Jay just kind of take pressure off of remove the remove as much pressure as they could. Typically, they remove the females or what you need to get out of there to get a sheep population to come back. Mm-hmm. There's no girls; the boys don't show up for the party. Yeah, um, and the and the females when they set up and teach those kittens to kill those sheep, they're just devastating. I know the guys in Nevada, Jim Bueller and Casey Shields, are both were just working on the Salmon River on the Rockies, uh, removing lions up there this last week. So that's been for, very- for what kind of stuff? There, ag purposes or for wildlife purposes? No wildlife purpose. That's all wildlife stuff. That's one thing you really lose is sport. Well, you, it's very expensive to keep professional lion hunters in business, and uh, we'll always have them as long as we have lions. I mean, in California, they. They banned sport sport hunting of lions, and I think they were killing three or four hundred lions a year. Yeah, no, they kill three or four hundred do the same thing. Except we pay to do it. Yeah. And uh, is that right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. The, the harvest of lions has never gone down in California. It's just illegal to do it from a sports standpoint now. But from the, the agriculture standpoint, you know, you just if you're going to have going to feed this nation, you have to keep predators from eating the sheep and the cattle. It's just a how it is. Any idea what it costs? You think to keep to kill three or four hundred lions in California? No, I mean I don't know off the top of my head, but it's you know it's it's a government agency that's functioning, and you can imagine the expense of that. But we'd have them anyway. They deal with a lot of other things. They deal with everything from the you know controlling the the waterfowl around airports, so we can take off and land our airplane. Yeah, you know deer on the the runways at the military bases, and you know things but, like but that. Something must have shifted in California though, because you hear about that that like. The, the number of cats, the lions are removing through predator control. But then, on the other hand, you hear so many stories about just like the shifting nature of the lion population in California. And lions popping up in places they hadn't popped up in before. Guys losing more livestock to lions than they used to. So, something must be... It must not be that they were going to kill X number and now they're killing the same number anyways. Or else you probably wouldn't have these issues. No, and, and it's always hard to track lion, actual lion harvest numbers. But one thing that you, when you are hunting a lion population, you know, it's especially even if guys are turn, catching them and turning them loose, those lions have a tendency to avoid people. Mm-hmm. And these big males, Chris's was, I mean, I think back to yours was probably the wor- one of the worst I can remember. But we caught one in New Mexico last year that absolutely, and, and I can tell when I come up to them whether they're going to be a problem or not. But some of those lions, they're king of the woods. Those big males, they don't wonder if they can kill you. And and when you get a lion like that wandering around in some place with children or people that are jogging and not paying attention, if it decides to kill, I think the only reason they don't kill more people is that A, they're upright and they don't correlate that with their normal method of taking prey. Yeah. And we probably taste bad. You know, I mean, in comparison to say a deer or something they're accustomed to eating. But we've certainly lost people. I mean, and every year, you know, Colorado seems to be having more more interaction than anybody these days. Petite female joggers. Oh. And then ad- and then uh, young kids. It seems those, like the, those are the... So it's like something, it is like there's some kind of like visual thing and often like the thing with like people running. Well, I think the reaction of those two types of people are where a man may stand his ground or, or at least not, at least think not to just turn and run. Uh, children, it's hard to convey that to them. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just probably, they're scared and they're going to run. And, and even if the cat wasn't, cats are very instinctive. They're just like house cats. Lions are overgrown, great big version of a house cat. And if something runs from it, they, they just go into that predatory mode. But when you factor, like, how many lions there are, it's kind of shocking. And, like, how many there are and that they have the capability 
to kill people. It's shocking that it just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen more. And I always tell people, you know, here in Arizona, it used to be typical for people to hunt a lifetime and see a lion. Now, with everybody doing so much more optics hunting, they, they tend to see a lot more with the optics than they used to. Yeah. But I always told people, I said, well, don't ever wonder if one has seen you. You know, I don't know how many times we've ridden by where a lion was laid up and come back the next day and trailed it. You know, and realize that son of a gun was right there. Oh, is that right? You yeah. know, why, let us ride by. and Maybe it was asleep. Maybe it was watching us. Who knows? But it was 500 yards up on the side of the mountain and the bluffs watching us probably. Yeah, not to digress a little bit, but just a, a point you were talking about with uh, lion harvest and lion, lion predation. And Floyd pointed this out to me, and I, I, I think it's, it's genius in the process, the thought process, is that, you know, we're, we're controlling, we're hunting lions, but we don't control coyotes near as, as well as we used to with the banning of trapping in most states and the banning of poison in all states. You know, so a lion goes out and a lion kills a deer, an average, it needs an average of one deer a week. Well, a lion goes out and kills a deer. Well, now our coyote population's out of control. The coyotes come along, find the kill, eat it before the lion can even get a belly full practically. Now, all of a sudden, that lion's back hunting again. Oh, you know, so yeah. instead of killing one deer a week, he's maybe killing two or three just to meet his needs. Yeah. You know, so it's, you know, a state like California, we're killing, they used to kill 300 with sport, with sport hunting. Now we're killing 300 with government hunters. But I gotta believe if, if we were controlling coyote populations, that 300 would be, was a lot more significant number back then than it is now. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, because the coyotes are just basically forcing the deer to hunt, I mean, the lion to hunt. Interesting. Since we've had that conversation, I saw a study the other day where they've documented that with the wolves. The same scenario. Did they get, the, the grizzlies steal their. That the, the wolves steal the lion kills. Oh, wolves steal lion kills. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they pirate them. Which, you know, there's a lot of things going on that are always hard. It's a very dynamic process when you try and figure out how lions engage the prey species. But there's always a lot of moving parts to it, too. And the coyote deal is a real significant problem here. Uh, they've taken some steps here to try and manage them in certain places. But it's, it's definitely where our fawn crop is really, really getting hammered here. Losing them to that. There, there was a video clip that came out of Washington where a deer had a, was wearing a collar camera. And um, you, you're, they have the footage from this where because he's like, it's just like sort of, it's sort of like the the camera's hanging down where like the tags on a dog would hang down, and you can see the deer. He's just browsing, and when a lion comes and kills it, the lion comes directly on that thing. Doesn't come from behind. Doesn't jump from a tree. It's just all of a sudden there's a lion running directly at this deer. Wow. And that deer's just dead in seconds. Yeah. Oh, they're, they're extremely effective killers. But he just came, like, just at it, you know? And typically, I, I would say that they, they kind of ride up on him from behind and try and... Oh, you'd, you'd think, wouldn't you think that that'd be how you do it? This guy just is like, all of a sudden, there he is. Head on. Head on, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and you got the feeling he'd done it before, you yeah, know? And, you know, some of those big males and, and any lion, their strength... Pound for pound is just unbelievable. I, to me, I, I mean, I've seen them flip dogs' distances with. I'm not even sure I saw quite how the dog got slung so far, and their strength is amazing. And, all, and to watch them leap up onto some bluffs and they just explode and fly through the air. It's a, they're just if you like, I refer back to the house cat. You know, you watch a house cat 
it's nothing for them to leap up on the you know side of the any piece of furniture anything they decide to. That's how those lions are just on you know tenfold that. Yeah. You ever been scratched by a lion? The uh, no, I haven't. Uh, the uh, although Joe got bit two years ago, and uh, that was a complete fiasco. Our, our girls had shot the lion with a thirty-eight special, and it came out of the tree, and uh, the dogs were mauling. It was a you know kind of the normal problem. And the the lion, when Joe stepped in there to try and grab one of his dogs, the lion got a hold of his jeans, and just I mean in one just jerked on him a little bit and jerked his leg out from under him and then just bit him in the right here in the calf and then proceeded to just claw its way up him. And that was, uh, and, and I had a pretty big old oak limb that I, I always get a stick when, when we're about to shoot one. Anyhow, I went to hitting that thing and I couldn't get it off of him, but when I hit it, it would quit going up him other than it was, and it bit him, it only bit him really hard the one time. And, uh, I remember the last time I swung at that thing, I remember thinking, if I miss this lion, I'll break his femur in half. And, uh, and I hit the lion in the head, and it turned around and came after me. And, and I had a pistol, too, so it was you know, kind of the end of the story there. But it was, uh, it was a painful experience for him. And, I mean, it punched some holes in him. Did he have to do much of uh, staples? Shots, like any kind of shots for that? Well, you've met Joe, so you can imagine. I mean, it was all we could do to get him to take some antibiotics. <laughs> <laughs> he was kind of thought it was kind of a cool deal. He's bleeding all over the place. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, that's really the only one where I've been involved in, in uh, somebody getting hurt. You know, um, the first line I ever saw, I was coming back from trout fishing on this lake, and I'm driving... It's just after dark, and I'm driving like on a where a road's cut into a steep hillside, and all of a sudden all these whitetails are like coming down the grade in just like a cloud of dust and kind of like plopping down into the road in front of me. But like they're spooked rather than being spooked from me, they're going towards you. They're spooking from something almost like running into my in, into my my van and the headlights. And all, and then, but then the road was so sheer on the side that they sort of shuffle, trying to stay on the road without going over the ledge. They sort of shuffle along, like right alongside the door of the vehicle. And I roll my window down and put it in reverse to turn the rear lights on because I'm trying to see what they're doing. And I roll the window down, put the backup lights on, and standing, just feet off my bumpers, a lion standing there. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, I have no idea what I drove into or what the situation was <laughs> as I came around the corner, and I, like, tried, like, to piece it together in my head, but there's no way to explain, like, how everyone got in the position they were in when I hit them with those lights. <laughs> like, you probably did a double take. <laughs> yeah, I was like, he's like, hold on a minute, now what? Like, there's a van here now? <laughs> Yeah, probably thinking, thank God for that truck. That no, was just the weird. Yeah, it was the weirdest thing, man. He's just like standing there in the backup lights, like yeah, like he's trying to kill one around me. So now, if you've been you you hunt lions in Arizona, and New Mexico, now what prevents you from just taking your lion hunting operation and and going to like the next frontier of lion hunting? 
Well, I think we're probably in it here. I think there's probably more opportunity. Nothing prevents you from doing that. You can travel and go. But you think that, like, but you feel like this is still, like, a good, for now, even, yeah, with like, the, a good place to be a lion hunter. Yeah, so I, it's not nearly as, as good as it was five years ago or uh, even ten years ago. I, some, somewhere in there we peaked out, and it's been declining ever since. But it's, uh, it's one of the greatest places there is because here we, you know, it, it snows in the high country every year consistently, but there's always lots of wilderness areas and pockets that these lions can move out of. That, so you have a, a constant uh, regeneration of most areas. Mm-hmm. And, and with that said, this year is the first time we've seen places where there's no lions in certain spots. And, and that's you know, well, concerning to everybody that likes to hunt lions here in Arizona right now. What do you attribute that to? I mean, in the last five years, it's not like there's been like a great you know, influx of lion hunters. It, well, there's been more. Is that right? More people have got, you know, there's, I, I every day hear somebody that's a lion hunter that I've never met and never heard of, whereas 10, 15, 20 years ago, I kind of knew everybody that, that did it very much. And the, I, the biggest thing that I think is a factor now is the mechanization. When people used to have to ride mules and, and that was the primary way to do it, it was limited, it's limit, limiting in itself that, just to have the livestock, so not everybody did it. But now with the four-wheelers, I see a lot of guys that uh, wouldn't be effective normally that are very, very effective because they'll drive on their four-wheelers till they find a track, just like they were hunting in the snow, and then they'll find a track in the dust. Right, in the dust. And that and that seems to have really increased the harvest of lions. And with that said, our lion harvest has not changed significantly. Arizona's harvested between two and 300 lions for you know, well over a decade. Oh, I got you. So something else is going on that's... Yeah, and I'm not... Like, like you, we were talking about earlier, like something with like the, like the like a, a cycle with the with the prey. Prey base. You know, and our deer herd's been in a decline for a decade anyway. Yeah. Maybe two decades. Yeah. And possibly everything's just reaching that point where the predators are following it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just really hard to say. I, and this is, you know, the first time I've ever felt like our lion numbers were low. And, and, it's, and, and it's not, I don't think that much, there's much that could be done to change it one way or the other if you want to increase it or decrease it more. It's just a natural thing, a natural peaks and valleys of wildlife. Yeah. What's the next favorite food after deer for a mountain lion, not counting domestic? Javelina here. It's uh, number two. Yeah. Um, It'd probably go deer, calves, javelina. Uh, you know, in the spring around here, they can just be deadly on these calves. When we were out, we found where one had killed a fox. Well, a fox and a deer, and didn't, didn't they found a dead deer? Yeah. Didn't we find a calf kill it? One, an old calf kill? I don't remember that. I remember if like one had just like ripped the fox up. And that's kind of where you saw where they've eaten tortoises or turtles, right? Turtles or tortoises? Desert tortoises. Desert tortoises. Yeah. I happened to be riding along uh, with Matt Pierce, who was conducting the study in, in the Harquahalers and the Harkabars at the time. We were actually in the Wallapai Mountains and rode up where a lion had killed a desert tortoise and actually left a scratch right there by it. Really? Broke the shell off of it, bit, you know, down the busted the shell, and then probably jerked the turtle out through the hole, and then actually scratched just like he'd killed a deer. 
and left that turtle. And what was crazy was we ate the meat off the turtle. Yeah, we pulled the meat pre. It was just a, just a shell there. And Matt actually still, I'm sure he still has the shell. What was interesting was we were riding that day discussing the fact that a biologist, a lady by the name of Jenny Cashman, had she was with the U of A at the time, and she had just finished doing the fecal exam. Or uh, they collected a bunch of scats up, and they were finding tortoise feet in there. Okay. And, uh, and they and, and Matt had asked me. He said, "Do you think they eat turtles? Oh, they eat everything else." Like, what all have you seen when you're tracking, and what all have you seen that they've killed? I can't think of anything that lives in Arizona that I haven't seen that they've killed. Badgers, skunks, bear, bear bears, bear? eagles. Bear, they were cubs, you know. Yeah, young bears. Um, elk, lots of sheep, mostly deer. Everything I, I just cannot think of a species antelope. We had one it was last year, or the year before, killed an antelope right up here by Sunset Point, and uh, you, they just they I think they can kill anything they want to. It just it's a matter of whether they decide to do it or not. You said you seem to have killed eagles. Yeah. Yep. And that was on a, one of their kills. Oh, he came down was uh, I was wondering like well, how he caught what the eagle was doing with the eagle was just eating something. Yeah, it was. I mean, somehow the lion. Of course, they birds. You know, cats catch birds all the time. I guess the lion, <laughs> you know, was probably laying right there when that eagle was eating on it and just took him out too. Did he eat the eagle? Yeah, he ate, probably ate the breast out of it. Really? I remember looking at that when we rode up, thinking, <laughs> "Oh, <laughs> I didn't like that at all." I didn't, I didn't want to get any credit for that yeah. at all. <laughs> Burrows. <laughs> burrows, they eat the wild burrows. They do. Yeah, you don't see that very often, but they'll kill these wild burrows once in a while. Yeah. Not enough of them, but. <laughs> Not enough of them. That's we train lions to kill burrows. We could solve a lot of problems. Yeah, turn those lions loose. Yeah, yeah man, that's the whole issue for a future conversation. <laughs> yeah. That would be good. I, I would love to have that conversation. Uh, on the burrow? Just about, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what to do about it. We need to not have it when Julie's around if we're going to transfer it to the wild horse population. <laughs> I just refuse to, like, like, I don't like the argument of people who say they should be treated like a native animal. They're not. Because, like, somehow during, like, the Eocene, they were here and then, you know, like millions of years ago, or that, that, that because the Spanish brought them here, they should be treated as a native species because the Spanish brought pigs. They're feral livestock. Yeah. At the end of the day, they're feral livestock. And these horse lovers can make all the arguments they want to about that. But they're non-native species in, a fer- in feral livestock. And how we have the Wild Horse and Burrow Act yeah. boggles my mind. And it is a, you know, it's devastating the habitat. That's what I would think. I would think any time you have a conflict between feral livestock and native wildlife, that... That it just, it, it, I can't believe there's even a debate about which is going to, who's going to take precedence. And even if you took the wildlife out of the scope of it, the damage that can be done through the overgrazing, the same people that want to run every cow off the, the land think it's okay to let the burrows and, and the horses destroy it. Graze it, yeah. yeah. Oh. Next time, ladies and gentlemen, on Meat Eater Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to take on the issue of wild burrows. You guys call them burrows? Burrows. That's what I call them. Yeah. It's a wild horse. No, we have no, burrows. Burrows here, too. Donkeys. Like full on wild donkeys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they're probably worse than yeah. the horses. Oh, I didn't know about that. How many of them roam? 
Arizona? Oh, in the thousands. Really? Yeah. They're really bad in desert sheep country because they'll just get into a water hole and just own it. They won't let anything come and drink. They'll just hang out there for days. Uh, anything that comes donkeys. into it. When yeah. you said that, I just automatically thought you meant like Mustangs. No, mm-hmm. we, and we, we have more horses here now than we ever did due to the big fires that we had. A lot of domestic horses got loose. Mm-hmm. And, a lot, and then we had the economic downturn. A lot of people turned horses loose here. Yeah. But uh, and also the shut when they shut down the horse slaughter facilities, yeah. right? You know, caused that. I remember I was talking to a stock detective. I wrote a story about livestock theft some years ago, and one of the stock detectives was saying that there used to be a horse theft problem, and now we have the opposite problem, <laughs> where people are always waking up to find horses they do not want <laughs> inside <up>. their fence. <laughs> Or instead of trying to go get a horse, you're always trying to go get rid of a horse. Find a place to put them. (laughs) All right. Thank you for tuning in. We will solve the wild horse, wild burrow dilemma next time on the Meat Eater Podcast. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Telling you what, Decked is a game changer. Decked has completely changed how I load, organize my truck. All my stuff that I want is always in there, out of my way, and secure. It's perfect. If you own a pickup truck that you use, you know, like a truck, the decked drawer system gives you weatherproof storage for all your gear. You can lock it up, too. You keep your tools and gear organized, job site or out in the field. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Go to decked.com slash meat eater. Get yourself some free shipping.